welcome to the Fullcasting Crew podcast Thank formally. You. Thank you. I think you're the first, well, no, I guess Rick Brown would have been the first super listener to then appear as a guest on the podcast, but you are the second most exclusive category of listener, the super listener. I think I hold a, a distinction now. Okay, what's that? I believe I am the person you have known the longest. Whoever to guest on the pod? Mm-hmm. I think I've known you longer than Kittle. Oh, yeah, without question. No, but without Kittle, question. it's only a year, probably. No, I didn't meet James until the 90s. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, then I am the person who you have known yes, the longest. Yeah. I have known you the longest. Um, and I feel like because of the tagline that you now use with your podcast, I believe in all those years, this is the first time that you've ever um, expressed that you love me. <laughs> That's so not true, Ben. You've, I totally have told you that in the past. Well, you've told it to me in your actions. It's true. I just don't know. If no, 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 no. I've used those words. I might have said man. Hold on, to it as say, men do. say it now and I want to see if it sounds familiar. No, now I feel awkward and uncomfortable. <laughs> Well, I love you, and I have no no problem saying it. I'm just going to let that silence hang. There. Okay. <laughs> We're really writing our own love story. We are. Uh, you and I. A love story. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's okay, so you chose this movie, Princess Bride. Is this movie particularly important to you? Yes, it's it's one of my favorite films. So even if I were just to choose from a list of favorites, it would be there. It would it would it would definitely be in my top ten. But it also holds a very special place in my heart for a, n- a number of reasons. I, I assume most of which we will cover. Okay. Well, why don't you tell me what some of them are? So to start, I love this movie from the first time I saw it, and I saw it when it came out, and pretty you know perfect timing. I was probably 18 or 19. I just mean perfect timing. I wasn't too young for it. I wasn't too old for it. It, mm-hmm. just, it. it hit me just right. And at the time, I don't think I knew who William Goldman was. I knew who Rob Reiner was because um, I'd right. seen the sure thing and Spinal Tap and of course Love Spinal Tap. And, and that was why I was excited because of having Love Spinal Tap. This is a top to uh, you know what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see... yeah. The numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board, oh. 11, oh, 11, and most 11. And most of amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most, most blokes are going to be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff. You know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. At the time, I don't think I knew who William Goldman was, as I said, but 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 I, I very quickly after that grew to love William Goldman. And I love William Goldman as a writer, both as a novelist and as a screenwriter. So I taught third grade for many years when I was a teacher, and I taught fifth grade for many years when I was a teacher. And when I taught third grade, I did not read this book to them. By the way, I'm someone who saw the movie first and then read the book, but I absolutely love the book. And if I, if I were to think that I'm hoping to accomplish anything today, it's, it's to encourage people who have seen the movie and not read the book to read the book because it's okay. its own experience, which is also fantastic. But anyway, okay. Um, so I, I did not read 
the book to third graders when I taught third grade, but I did read the book every year to my fifth graders when I taught fifth grade. And I think that that says a lot about those two ages, actually. It's actually a pretty interesting litmus test of the difference between those two ages that eight-year-olds really aren't quite ready for the book, The Princess Bride, and, and 10-year-olds really are. I mean, broadly, how is the book different than the movie other than the typical thing of, well, it has deeper characterizations and motivations for everybody? The way the film is framed is this idea that there's a sick young child and he's being read this story by his grandfather. I brought you a special present. What is it? Open it up. A book? That's right. When I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. The book, that's taken from the book, but the way it is from the book is that William Goldman is pretending that there is a book called The Princess Bride written by this guy, S. Morgenstern, who was the great Florinese writer of his time, you know, in Florin history, and that William Goldman, when he was a little boy, was read this book by his, this is all fiction, of course, um, was read this book by his uncivilized and unsophisticated barber father. He only came to realize later, when he was sick in bed, just like the boy in the movie, when he finally got his hands on the book, that his dad had left out all these huge parts of the book. So he then decides to set out to rewrite it and, and writes it as the good parts version of The Princess Bride. And that's sort of how this came to be. I had no idea William Goldman was a novelist mm, yeah. uh, outside of being a screenwriter. So I got the book and I started reading it. I was so confused through the first 50, 65 pages. I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea if S. Morgenstern, this was like some manuscript that Bill Goldman had found. I'm looking on the map, is Florin a real country? Like all the meta stuff. I was like, what is this? Why is this? Right. And even in the movie itself, why do you think there is that device? Do we need the Peter Falk, Fred Savage device? What does that give the narrative other than mm -hmm. those moments where it stops and starts and goes in a different direction. Is that the purpose for the device? So that when the story gets to a place that we don't want it, like Wesley's dead, that Peter Falk is the engine by which the story then turns and it's mm. just a little like writerly trick? You know, it's a really interesting because I think the device, which is very similar, serves a different purpose in the book than it serves in the movie. I think he originally did it in the book to sort of save himself the pain in the ass. So that when he gets to a part where he's like, I know in a book like this, what I should do is write this about this and describe this. What it allows him to do is he can step back and go, oh, at this point in the book, S. Morgenstern goes into this long-winded description of X, Y, and Z, and it's so boring, and so we cut it, you know, that kind of thing. I actually mm -hmm. think that is the reason, half the reason. I think the other half the reason is, you know, the, the, the story of how this came to be is that he, he had just finished writing something. It was time to write something else. He had two young daughters in the book. He claims he has one overweight son, but that's not true. He has two young daughters. Right. And he said to his daughters, what should I write about next? And one said princesses and the other said brides. And he said, I'm going to write the princess bride. Like that is literally the story of how that came about. But in the movie, I think what it does is it, 
first of all, it's a very, for most people, that's a familiar experience, right? I don't know. You know, as a uh, only child of a working single mother, I thought this spoiled little brat getting read to with a cold was like, shut, suck it up, Fred. Oh, he's, okay. He's such a jerk. He's such a jerk <laughs> to his grandfather. Yeah. He like, what are you doing? Like yelling at him. Now, do you think that Peter Falk is wearing his Columbo shirt and tie? Because I do. Well, listen, let me start with how much I like your jacket. I really love it. Do you mind? Soft as butter. Camel's hair. Would you believe it? The first thing I did this morning when I left your campaign headquarters, I run right over to your tailors. I'm sure he was delighted. He loves the challenge. What do you mean, sir? Nothing. It's a small joke. Oh, you mean about fitting me? I'm not hard to fit. No, just the legs. Now, something goes funny in here with the legs, but uh, oh, jackets, I pick them right off the rack. They fit like a glove. I, I, I not only think that, I actually think Peter Falk is a little bit doing if Columbo was a grandfather. <laughs> that would be you know, amazing. By the way, in researching a little bit for this podcast, I found out something so fascinating that I had never known before. Do you know that Peter Falk has two daughters? And yes. Do you know that one of them is a private detective? Yes. That's amazing to me. Of course. Yes. Of course you know. Really following in her father's footsteps. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that. Talk about um, turning fiction into reality. Peter Falk also presages sort of a thing that's going to occur in this fantasy movie, which is like, okay, Fred Savage is clearly in Chicago, mm -hmm. given the memorabilia, mm -hmm. yet his grandfather is like from Brooklyn. And we have many sort of agglomeration of different accents going on mm -hmm. within, the, within the characters in the movie itself, yeah. right? So it's it sort of just lends it another kind of, we can go anywhere and do anything there's a, do in this movie. There's a story where Wally Shawn says to Rob Reiner, I don't know how to do a Sicilian accent. And he says, don't worry, Vicini talks like you. Just keep going. <laughs> we are but poor lost circus performers. Is there a village nearby? There is nothing nearby, not for miles. Then there will be no one to hear you scream. Okay, so yes, as you mentioned, the movie had a torturous route to production, and I actually have a hot take for you, Ben. Okay, wow. You know, you know how usually I am anti any remaking anything classic. Oh yeah. Like I don't, I don't really appreciate when they say right. we're going to remake The Princess Bride in 2022. Which However, they, which they said they were going to. Which they said they were going to do, and there was a big outcry. Yes. Carrie Elway's tweeted about it and everyone there are a few was perfect movies in this world yeah i found myself agreeing with someone i rarely ever agree with oh, which wow. is richard brody from the new yorker okay and he wrote this long article which of course devolves into him comparing remakes from filmmakers i have never heard of nor have 99.9 percent .9 of any sentient <laughs> humans heard of but he basically advocates that they should remake this movie and i actually think they should I think they should, because I think one of the flaws of the film in the time period that it was made is it just it was too low budget for what the fantasy elements of the film really would support. Mm. It's not that they didn't do a great job with what they had, but if you imagine all of these different meta narratives and things that are going on with today's filmmaking mm -hmm. techniques, I actually think it would be 
a really interesting film to remake. And I also think that you could repair the character of Buttercup, who in this movie, in several articles, I was I was laughing because they refer to her as essentially just like a sack of yeah. gold that yeah, gets traded amongst she's men. She's not a real person. Yeah, yeah. So no, that funny. would be an interesting thing to do. Yeah, it's funny because that you know. For the listeners to know, we were originally going to do the movie Diner, um, which is also one of my favorite films, also does not treat its female characters with with very much yeah. respect. So let's talk about you, um, Ben. Well, it was interesting when, 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 you know, you were talking, I think it was Dirty Dancing episode, you were yeah. talking about the Bechdel test, and I... At the time that you were doing Dirty Dancing, I, I was we, we were preparing that I was going to do Diner with you, and I thought... Oh man, Uh-oh. Diner fails the Bechdel <laughs> test so badly that that like it should go back a grade. Like not only not only are there just a few female characters, some of them not even named. They definitely don't talk to each other. They definitely don't talk about anything that's not a man. But this is this is the the, the key to me is that if you talk about the plot of Diner, of which there is not much, but if you talk about the plot, you almost inevitably would have to mention the wedding. It's how the movie ends. You know, it's a through line throughout. There's the So if you're describing the plot of the movie Diner, someone who's never seen it, and they're like, oh, well, there's a wedding. It ends in a wedding. Who plays the wife? And you'd be like, oh, she's not a character. She's not, she's a, not a character. You don't need to worry about that. So, yeah, that's anyway, essentially. Yes. So I was glad to switch over to this movie, which also fails the Bechdel test. Although I did see in an online forum that some people like to claim it passes two of the three steps of the Bechdel test because the the witch woman yelling boo at her is talking to Buttercup. It's wow, that's going characters. It's going pretty deep. Yeah, yeah. That's going pretty yeah, deep no, to I pass agree, the Bechdel test. That sentiment. It's true. It's not. You know. It's it, it, that is a true sentiment. Your hot take is very interesting. I I hear you about the CGI. I mean, the RUSs are so terrible. They're so the awful. sets are terrible. The sets too. are terrible. There's so many moments that you can see little things in them. You know, the the right. one of the famous stories is that Andre the Giant, who was hired mostly because of his size had literally no strength. He was probably yes. the weakest person on set. And his, so when, his back was injured from years of wrestling and he couldn't bear any weight. So in all the scenes where he's carrying Robin Wright, she's actually suspended on wires. Exactly. And, and so yeah. if you look at the Cliffs of Insanity scene closely, you can see the line that's been cut into the cliffs because there's obviously a hydraulic lift yeah. bringing them up. Right. So, you know, I hear all that, but for me, I think that that low level really adds charm. I think it's nice that it's not CGI. I think right, but is that charm now, or is that charm when you saw it in the moment, or when you saw it in the moment, did it feel like a movie of its time? Was it nineteen eighty-eight? Eighty-six. It was filmed in eighty-six. Came out in eighty-seven. I think that it is so well cast that I think I, I really think there was no there's no mistake in casting in this film, and I think it would be almost impossible to cast this film now and 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 do it well. And certainly, okay, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you my rundown okay. on who's who's good in this movie, okay. and and who is not. Okay? okay. Number one, Mandy Patinkin is great. I was 11 years old when I was strong enough. I dedicated my life to the study of fencing. So the next time we meet, I will not fail. I will go up to the six-fingered man and say. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. 
Manny Patinkin is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Andre the Giant is phenomenal. Well, there's why you couldn't cast this film now. That, that, that he is the person for that role. Well, yes, but you could do that. You could you could figure out how to do that. Chris Guest is good. Love Chris Guest. Mm-hmm. My favorite Chris Guest story from the movie, which I'm sure you remember from As You Wish because it's very funny, was, you know, Mandy Patinkin and Carrie Elwes trained so hard and for so long that they actually yes. both became great sword fighters. And in fact, Mandy Patinkin, who was right-handed, mm-hmm. was so concerned about being good with his left hand that he trained much more with his left hand and actually now is a much better sword fighter with his left hand than with his right hand. But... Chris Guest, because he really only has one scene of sword fighting, did did far less training. <laughs> they got to the set the mm-hmm. first day, and when they started the sword fight scene, Rob Reiner yelled, cut, cut. And and Chris Guest was like, why? What, what's wrong? And they were like, Chris, we'll, we'll edit in the sound later. He was going, shh, 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 with his mouth. Well, it's actually funny because it's hard to think – of another example of someone like Chris Guest, who admittedly had a long and storied career as a comedy writer and performer long before Spinal Tap came along. But I'm trying to think of another example of someone who was in an iconic movie like that as maybe the iconic character in the iconic movie, who then goes on to make iconic comedy films. I used to be able to name every nut that there was and that used to drive my mother crazy because she used to say Harlan Pepper if you don't stop naming nuts and the joke was of course that we lived in pine nut and I think that's what put it in my head at that at that point so I'd go to sleep she'd hear me in the other room and she would just start yelling I'd say peanut hazelnut cashew nut macadamia nut. That was the one that was sent her <laughs> into a, going crazy. She said, you stop naming nuts. And Hubert used to be able to make the sound and he wasn't talking, but he used to go It sounded like macadamia nut. Pine nut. Which is a nut, but it's also the name of the town. Pistachio nut. Red pistachio nut. Natural, all natural, white pistachio nut. It's a testament to how good Robin Wright would become that in her first film, in as thankless a role mm-hmm. as Buttercup is, mm-hmm. and frankly, kind of a pretty insulting role mm-hmm. for an actor oh, to be given. I mean, it's sort of like the, the lack of agency. I mean, I'm not just talking about yeah. 2020 eyes. I'm talking about even in a fairy tale. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. like he just gives her it's nothing worse in the to book. do. It's worse in the book. She's dumb. It's terrible. Yeah. And also in the book, he's got all this stuff about boobs and kisses. It's like, grow up already. I mean, give me a break. But it's a testament to how great she is and would become. She's 18, 18, 19 years old when she made this movie. Had only been on Santa Barbara, the soap opera. Had only been on the soap opera Santa Barbara. And because she's that good, even though she has nothing to do, she she definitely gets into your camp of good. You know, is good. I know who you are. Your cruelty reveals everything. You're the Dread Pirate Roberts. Admit it. With pride. What can I do for you? You can die slowly, cut into a thousand pieces. Hardly complimentary, Your Highness. Why lose your venom on me? You killed my love. It's possible. I kill a lot of people. Who was this love of yours? Another prince like this one? 
ugly, rich, and scabby. No, a farm boy, poor. Poor and perfect. With eyes like the sea after a storm. Chris Sarandon is great. You need him, his, his oleaginous charm, his wit. That works really, really well. It's odd. But when I hired Vazini to have her murdered on our engagement day, I thought that was clever. But it's going to be so much more moving when I strangle her on our wedding night. Once Gilder is blamed, the nation will be truly outraged. They'll demand we go to war. <laughs> I will say, I don't think Wally Shawn is good. Oh and I God. don't, and I don't think, and I, and I, mean, I love, I, I, I love Carrie Elways. I love his book. A uh, very charming book, one of the best and most heartfelt books about the making of movies that you can read is Carrie Elway's book, As You Wish, about the making of The Princess Bride. However, I understand why he's in the movie. I understand that he looks that way. Mm -hmm. They don't have any chemistry together. Mm. Him and Robin Wright do not, there are no sparks. And Wally Shawn is, it's like an idea that you would have over cocktails when you're talking about making the movie, but you should have dismissed that idea after your second cocktail instead of signing the actor by your third cocktail. Well, you know the whole story, of course, because you've read As You Wish, but the story is just, it's pure gold. He, he was definitively not the first choice. When his agent called him, they told him he was the third choice and told him that Danny DeVito and Richard Dreyfuss had both turned it down. And he <laughs> spends the entire movie thinking he's going to get fired any minute. He spent the entire movie just trying to do what he thought Danny DeVito would do in the part. And he got a line reading for every single line he did. That is unheard of. Rob Reiner. Yeah, but that's a Reiner thing. Rob, he did that to everybody on the it movie. He did it to everybody. He fed, he fed him every single line. And when, when Wally Sean talks about it, he says that performance is really about a third Rob Reiner, a third me, and a third Danny DeVito. I just don't think it's right killing an innocent girl. Am I going mad? Or did the word think escape your lips? You were not hired for your brains, you hippopotamic landmass. I agree with physic. Oh, the sot has spoken. What happens to her is not truly your concern. I will kill her. And remember this. Never forget this. When I found you, you were so slobbering drunk, you couldn't buy brandy. And you, friendless, brainless, helpless, hopeless. Do you want me to send you back to where you were? Unemployed in Greenland? He said, for example, like the falling off the rock. He only did that because Rob Reiner showed him to do that. He said he would never have come up with that. I think it's weird that Reiner does that as such a nice guy because like being married to a theater director and someone who works with actors all the time, like you don't give a line reading to an actor that way. That's just not done. That's right. like an insult. Right. right. And Carrie always in his book actually is so in his British way writes, you know, I was surprised when Rob offered me a line reading because as an actor, that's not the usual, you know? And it's like, basically, it's his polite way of saying, what the fuck? Yeah, it um, sounds, but it sounds like people all accepted that, at least. I, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. But I, this is my big contention is, you know, Carrie always, yes, he looks like a young Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And he, he has that, he's prettier than Robin Wright almost. But I watched it again last night and I was... You're catching me at a bad time to watch The Princess Bride because I've just been going down a wormhole of like really brilliant 
Japanese widescreen crime films of the 60s that are all about societal conflict and Akira Kurosawa and all this kind of thing. And then I'm like, the last night I put on like The Princess Bride, I'm just like, what is this marshmallow? Did Elodie watch it with you? Did Elodie watch it? No, no, she didn't because we don't have TV here. So Uh, Uh, we're quarantining without television. So I just watched it on my laptop. Um, and I watched all the making up stuff, which I loved. And quarantining without television, you you guys yes. deserve a medal. <laughs> well, we do have iPads and computers, okay. so okay. Yeah, the casting. I walk me through some of the alternative stuff. Did they consider anyone other than Carrie Elways before they settled on him? Did they consider anyone no, they, other than Robin Wright? No, they 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 chose Carrie Elways basically for his look. He had just been in Lady Jane, and they and Rob Reiner was shown it by the casting directors. The casting directors, Jane Jenkins and Janet Hershenhorn, you know. I love going to casting directors IMDb pages because instead of, you know, a hundred, it's four hundred things. Yes. You know, so these are like these are top of the line cast directors. Yep. They're amazing. Jane Jenkins says that the Princess Bride is her favorite film she ever cast. This is interesting. I looked up the Ardios Awards for the year that, that the hell's that? That's the uh, Casting Society of America Awards. Wow. That's started, a, I bet that's a great dinner. They started in the, <laughs> they started in the early eighties. It's the Oscars for, for... Wait, why is it called Ardios? Is that like Greek for casting or something? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Or is it Ardy? Ardy O'Shea, <laughs> legendary <laughs> casting. Maybe it's an acronym, but I don't want to try and figure it out right now. But anyway, <laughs> um, so the year that this... So this it was only the fourth Ardios Awards. Wait, I'm sorry. They actually have an award ceremony for casting directors. <laughs> I've never even heard of this. Hey, this is Matt, the engineer. So most of the craft organizations in television and film actually have societies that recognize those particular crafts and they distribute awards voted on by their peers. So in this case, we have the Casting Society of America, the CSA. Maybe you've seen the ACE, the American Cinema Editors, the ASC, the American Society of cinematographers on the sound side, MPSE, motion picture sound editors, or on the sound mixing side, the Cinema Audio Society. If you see letters after names and credits, CSA, CAS, MPSE, this is a designation that that person is really well regarded in their craft and is at a really high level. These are peer organizations where members recognize each year through awards the craftsmanship of people in their particular area. And it's usually, you know, it's a high honor to be in a craft and be invited into these societies. Anyway, back to the pod. They argued for years that they should have an Oscar. And for casting, the Oscars kept saying no. So they created. I would buy that. I would still, I would celebrate an Oscar for casting director. Let's talk. So, so I think the casting in this movie is fantastic. And it probably speaks to my inability to get truly critical of this film. Of course. That I, that I can't speak negatively to Wally Shawn or Carrie. Yes. Because, because probably if I was introduced to this movie today or in some other form, maybe I would be able to agree with you, but I'm not going to going to be willing to but um so these are the these are the five films up for the Ardios in 1988 the year that princess bride is one of the nominees radio days the princess bride moonstruck broadcast news and baby boom and believe it or not even it's got to go to moonstruck or broadcast news even though i think princess bride is one of my favorite films ever and i think it's so well cast I was appalled that Broadcast News didn't win. I think Broadcast News definitely <laughs> won. Moonstruck won. 
Yeah, but, but fair enough for Moonstruck. Broadcast News. Broadcast News, that's, that is some of the greatest casting in movie history. I've never seen you like this with anybody, so don't get me wrong when I tell you that Tom, while being a very nice guy, is the devil. This isn't friendship. You're crazy, you know that? What do you think the devil's going to look like if he's around? God. Come on, no one's going to be taken in by a guy with a long red pointy tail. Come on, what's he going to sound like? <sighs> no. I'm semi-serious here. You're serious. He will be attractive. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God-fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a living thing. He'll just bit by little bit lower our standards where they're important. Just a tiny little bit. Just coax along, flash over substance. Just a tiny little bit. And he'll talk about all of us really being salesmen. And he'll get all the great women. Anyway, let's we that's the first. Yeah, but broadcast news is cast not it's not surprisingly cast, right? So like Yes, uh, Jack Nicholson as a news anchor. Okay, I get that piece of stunt casting, essentially. It doesn't have much to do in the movie. You know, William Hurt was a big star at the time. That's so he Holly Hunter part. Holly Hunter was a Holly Hunter was someone. I'm raising Arizona. I mean, but she, <clears throat> I, I guess. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, you don't just like dismiss like she did Raising Arizona. Like that's, <laughs> okay. I mean, if you did that once, if that's the only film you made, Good you deserve a place Good point. Good point. Guess, on the Mount Rushmore. I guess what it is, is that when I think of those three performances, the Albert Brooks performance, the William Hurt performance, and the Holly Hunter performance, all three of those are cinematic gold. Sure. But the unexpectedness of Cher as okay. an Italian, okay. Loretta Castorini, and the balls to have Nick Cage go full Nick Cage in this otherwise romantic comedy is so unexpected and great. I, I mean, that's a we've done the movie on the podcast. I'm going to throw. I encourage a, people to listen to it. I'm going to throw a hot take your way. Okay, I agree with you. You've made your. I like opinion. that. If you knew our friendship, yeah, that would be exactly. a hot take because Ben. That's the hot take. Ben and I like to go back and forth. That's, we like that's to, the hot take. No, I agree with you because as I yin and yang. About, as I think about what you're saying when you think about the art of casting, that yes. even if those three great performances are great, you're, if, if you expected them to be great growing, going in, it's not, it's not as impressive of an idea as maybe casting Cher as the lead in that. Sure. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that, don't you think, and again, he's so British, so he's extremely polite, but don't you think that Carrie Elway's in his book basically tells readers that he and Robin Wright had an affair during the making of the film? I mean, he makes it clear that they have a very special connection and that, and that I mean, the whole, he writes an entire chapter basically about how neither of them wanted to stop doing takes of the end kiss. So, yeah, <laughs> Okay, so they considered no one other than him and no one other than Robin Wright? Oh, no, Robin Wright was like the million, Robin Wright, oh, okay. she was, was cast only because they got fed up of looking for people. They did so much casting, but but no, um, Carrie Elwes was the you know once once they had seen him in Lady Jane, Rob Reiner flies to Berlin to meet him, and once he you know says a couple lines, they're they're good with it. He he tells the story that um, you know Rob Reiner's concern was like he looked the part, but could he handle the comedic part? And that when yes. they met, Carrie Elwes did an impression that 
doesn't hold up post the publication time of As You Wish because he does an impression of Bill Cosby doing Fat Albert. And that's what mm. won Bob Reiner over that he could handle the, the humor. What's interesting about the humor is I think someone describes it as, or maybe it was Rob Reiner described it as he wanted the cast. I think Mandy Patinkin, who's hilarious in any making of featurette. I don't know if you've watched any of the featurettes, but you could listen to Manny Patinkin tell you a story of how he decided to buy pants without pleats versus pants with pleats. And he would tear up and it would make it the most engaging and amazing story that you ever heard. He'd be like, and in the end, I turned to my wife and I said to her, I think I'm going to go without the pleats. (laughs) And I did. I mean, he tells these stories that are so incredible. I think he's the one who says, that Rob Reiner wanted every character in their own way to be like a card player who was only showing so many of their cards and to otherwise pretty much play it straight, which as we know is the secret to good comedic acting is you have to commit. And that's why Patinkin of anyone in the film, I think gives, gives a fully realized and complete performance almost alone in the movie. He is someone who embodies I feel like I could tell you what that character was like as a child, as a as a grown man, what he would likely have for breakfast, like what his foibles would be. He was so all in and he's Manny Patinkin. So, of course, he went so all in that that's what you see on screen when an actor does that. Whereas, like, I mean, Christopher Guest could show up on a Thursday and do what he did in the movie without knowing anything about what the movie was about and be as hilarious as he is. Like, it doesn't really require much characterization to be as wittily funny as Chris Guest can be and he just off the top of his head. He's not really given great lines, but he, but he takes the lines he's given. And he's just, he knows what he knows how to make hay while the sun is shining there. Rob Reiner said he could play any part he wanted. And he, I know, but they all say that they all say that. Like what is okay? So what if he said, okay, I want to be Wesley. No, no, no. Meaning like, (laughs) what does that mean? You could play an ego. He could have been an ego, but, but, but he wanted to be the bad guy. The famous Andre the Giant Samuel Beckett story has now been, you know, dis- disabused. Slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Was that like they were driving in a car together and they hit someone in a car? Or- no, no, no. It's just it's that um, it's that Samuel Beckett took a home in this small town in France, which happened to be Andre the Giant's hometown. And the way the story goes, Andre the Giant, at, as a fifth grader, had already grown too large to fit on the school bus. And that Samuel Beckett owned the only convertible in town. So Samuel Beckett agreed to drive Andre the Giant to school every day. So this great I love this. It's so good. And, of, and unfortunately, it turns out not to be true. I mean, it, 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 is, <laughs> it is in fact true. Samuel Beckett did drive Andre to sure. school. The, the parts that aren't true, supposedly, is that Andre Giant could still fit on the school bus. Samuel okay. Beckett gave all kinds of kids rides to school. He was a nice guy who was just helping out the whole community. And Andre the Giant happened to be one of them, and they didn't form a specific personal bond, it, a, according to the people who are, I like to imagine it, that it is the other way, the original way. There's another anecdote in one of the makings of where I was like, wait, what? I had to stop the whole thing down because somebody was like telling a story about Andre and part of the story was, and of course, at the time, Andre had a farm in North Carolina. Like, Wait, what? <laughs> Andre the Giant had a farm in North Carolina? Yes, he liked to go and just be with the animals because they made him feel less freakish right. and strange. Yeah. And I was like, wow. So Andre, I mean, is such a great example of someone who is wonderful in the movie, not because he's a real giant, actually, but because the warmth of his soul is so 
omnipresent and oozes through every pore of every scene that he's in yeah. that you can still hear people talking about it, you know, 25, 35 years later when they're talking about him. And they're not just talking about him in the way that people talk about people who have since passed on and, you know, they were lucky enough to have a brush with that person. So they sort of self-aggrandize their importance or his importance to them in their stories. That's not the way any of these people are talking about Under the Giant. You can hear every person in this movie talk about him with such warmth, such affection, and that like tinge of poignancy because there was a sadness. There was alcoholism. There was a lot of uh, mental difficulty in terms of being seen to be this freak and 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 not wanting to be looked at which is of course the great and underlying irony of most every performer i loved andre he had this farm in north carolina um as i recall and he said he he loved walking with the animals because they don't look twice at him and he said big people little people we get gypped it's difficult everywhere i go because they don't build anything for big people they build everything for blind people for crippled people for some other people, but not for big people. So we have to fit in there. And it's not too easy all the time. Andre had difficulty bearing weight because of his back problems. So they hired a giant where they knew he couldn't speak English, but they figured at least they won't have trouble with any of the giant stuff. And he actually handled the English language fine and couldn't lift a feather. He couldn't even hold me. I had to be hooked up to cables when I'm supposed to fall into his arms. And, you know, 100 pounds, he couldn't, it killed him. My favorite moment with him, Andre and I were on the boat alone with only the script supervisor. Hello. She turned to Andre and she said, have you enjoyed this experience? Has it been enjoyable for you? Has it been pleasurable for you? And he said, oh, yes. She said, tell me how, what, what have you enjoyed about it? He looked at her and he said, without skipping a beat, nobody looks at me. He was just one of the guys. One thing that's really interesting about coming to learn more about the film is when I was a kid and I saw the movie, I saw Andre the Giant, and I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, you know, he's toiling away as a wrestler, probably not making a whole lot of money. Of course he would want to join up with a movie. The, the, the fact is, is they almost didn't get him. And the reason they don't, almost didn't get him is that his the shooting schedule conflicted with, with a wrestling schedule um, and they were like, well, can we buy him out of that? And they were like, well, he's going to make $5 million. So do you want to spend $5 wow. million? That's 1986. Come on. Is that true? Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't for just one event. It was for like a few events, but he was going to make $5 million. The fact wow. that he owned a farm in North Carolina, I think he was very, very, very wealthy from wrestling. And I think what is interesting about that is he didn't do the movie for money. I think he did the movie mm-hmm. because... I mean, this is just complete I'm just out of my head, but I think he did the movie because he really, you know, he says in the Carrie Elwes book that he's happy about his life because he's lived such an interesting life. He is said to be the largest and highest paid and best known wrestler in the entire world. This man stands seven feet, four inches tall, weighs in at about 500 pounds. Please welcome Andre the Giant. I think doing this film just felt like it would make his life more interesting because it wasn't going to be easy. When you watch the, I, anytime someone is watching this film, the next time you watch the film, 
watch the scene where they climb up the cliffs of insanity and look at his face at the very, very end when Inigo has to climb over him. Now, we know hydraulics got him up there. We know he didn't do any lifting. But you can see that Mandy Patinkin has to sort of like get mm-hmm. off of his back. The pain that registers mm-hmm. under the giant's face is real pain. Wow. That is not yeah. And you know what's amazing is he told Manny Patinkin that being on a movie set was was one of those times where no he felt like no one was looking at him because right. you know a movie set right. is not unused to strange things All of that sort. Of that's, yeah, totally. That's not a that he didn't stand out in that way. So you could really tell that it meant so much to him uh, to be in that part. Put that one back. Uh, well, you said there were when were you were you kidding when you were talking about alternative casting for. For Fezzik? Uh, Richard Keel, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which would have at least added <laughs> of course. a person of color to the film, Lou Ferrigno, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and only did I find out recently because he talked about it on an interview show, Liam Neeson auditioned for the part. What? Basically, Liam Neeson walked in and Rob Reiner was like, no, no, sorry. And he was only six months. Liam, what is like 19-year-old Liam Neeson is going to be Fezzik the Giant? How does that work? Yeah, maybe, maybe he's making that story up. And then, uh, you know, I already mentioned Danny DeVito and Richard Dreyfuss for Vizzini. The the only other one that's, that is really interesting is, is uh, Michael Palin was originally thought of to be the clergyman that Peter Cook ends up playing. Okay, I want that's a good thing to stop down on because to me, <clears throat> a lot of this film plays like Monty Python light. You know, that's kind of mm-hmm. where it's pitched. It, it kind of wants to get there. Uh, and thank God when Peter Cook showed up, I was just so, uh, just so welcomed that brilliant cameo. I think DeVito would have been a really good Vizzini. He would have actually, yeah. he has a down. deviousness, yeah. but you know, Wally Shawn's, it's almost kind of like, it's not stunt casting to have Wally Shawn because Wally Shawn does a thing. Yeah. It's funny that he plays Vizzini and he can do all the Vizzini things. And it's funnier than it would be with even Danny DeVito for some reason, because he's so effete and such a New Yorker, even in the middle of this fantasy story taking place, you know, hundreds of years ago. All I have to do is divine from what I know of you. Are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You've made your decision then? <laughs> not remotely, because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. And Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Wait till I get going. Where was I? Australia. And he does disappear from the movie fairly early on, so it's not as if he, you know, has a role to play. Which is probably why Devito didn't do it. Yeah, right? I don't know why I didn't. I mean, I think at the time people weren't so sure this thing was going to work. <laughs> well, and it actually didn't work. I mean, right. it, what, this right. is this is one of those movies of which there are many, where and I, I don't know what they spent on it. Eight million dollars. Eighteen million dollars. Sixteen million. Okay, so that's that's a good chunk of change for 1986, but it didn't do well when it came out. It became a hit in the early 90s with with the dawn of like the the VHS and the DVD sales and everything, and then all of a sudden it kind of became this thing. I'm not sure why. I, I love the book as you wish. Also, you spoke very highly of it. 
one of the things that I think is so nice in the book is Carrie Elwes is that towards the very end of the book, he says, you know, what's interesting about what happened with the reception of this film is very similar to what happens in Miracle Max's, um, you know, mm-hmm. cabin with him is that the movie wasn't dead. It was mostly dead. And it was brought <laughs> back to life with the advent yes. of VHS. It's, it's a, I, I thought that was a cute little. That is cute. I need him to help avenge my father. Murdered these 20 years. Your first story was better. Where's that bellows cram? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead. He can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead is slightly alive. Now, all dead... Well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Apparently, a lot of his funniest stuff couldn't be used because it was a little, you know, a little oh, crystal, yeah. crystalline off-color. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, um, he originally compared uh, True Love to a vigorous bowel movement <laughs> before he got to the MLT. True Love. True Love, you heard him? You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Yes, honey. True love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT, a mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes are ripe. They're so perky. I love that. Yeah, they had to move Rob Reiner off off stage because he kept cracking up. and, and He was laughing too hard. Yeah. I, I think um, Billy Crystal is great. I mean, again, one of the things that so surprised me when I read this book is how much of that is in the book. The, the mutton lettuce tomato sandwich, obviously, it, yes. in the book, it's cough drops, which doesn't mm-hmm. good, and but it actually get, continues to get used as a joke. But um, but they talk a lot about all the ad libs, but there were, I mean, Have Fun Storm in the Castle is actually an ad lib, and that turns into more famous right. lines in the film. So there are a few. Bye bye, boys. Have Fun Storm in the Castle. Think it'll like? It would take a miracle. Bye bye. The other thing, speaking of what isn't ad-libbing um, that really surprised me when I first read the book, is that the Peter Cook character, the clergyman, that's all written. Like you bring in a comedy legend like Peter Cook, you, you let him do it, and, he, does, and yeah. he changes things. It's written as Maui in the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, and, and actually, just to go back for a second, the reason why Michael Palin turned down the film is because of the speech impediment, and he was getting ready to do a fish called Wanda, and he didn't want to be like the speech impediment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the book, do you think that the character, do you think that the actors who ended up playing the roles feel like the characters in the book to you? For the most part, yeah. I mean, the one thing I love about this book, I, I you know, I love character detail. Character detail is just like my favorite thing. I, you know, when I think about a movie like The Big Lebowski, the John Turturro scene where he licks the bowling ball, that scene doesn't mm-hmm. drive the film 
awkward in any mm-hmm. way. You could remove it entirely and it wouldn't change anything about the film, but it's so fantastic. Like, how could you leave it out, right? And so one thing I love about this movie that is even more so in the book is just all of the character detail. You just get to learn so much about these people. And I think that's part of why they were so fun to play. And, you know, you get to know, <clears throat> I would say the single biggest difference between the book and the, the movie is that in the book, you get the full backstory of Inigo Montoya. You get the full backstory of Fezzik. And you you get to learn a little bit about the backstory of Inigo Montoya just through his little speech when they're on the mm-hmm. about to have the sword fight. But you you never really hear Fezzik's whole backstory. And that part is really great. Also, there's a whole long... Fezzik and Inigo are much bigger characters in the book, and they're already big in the movie. There's a whole thing because in the book... It's not called the Pit of Despair. It's called the Zoo of Death. And it's got all these terrible mm-hmm. animals in it. And I'm sure for budgetary reasons, they decided to change it. But there's a whole very long bit where Nigo and Fezzik are getting through the Zoo of Death to get to the Man in Black. And that part's left entirely out of the movie. That's why I think like, if Terry Gilliam made this movie, you would have, you would have that almost untouchable Andre the Giant poignancy take center stage you would have that backstory because andre the giant's kind of feeling like a freak and and how that sort of affected his psyche yet also his addiction to being known and being famous right. and well william goldman william goldman died a couple of years ago so you could remake it and all you'd be doing is turning him over in his grave <laughs> you know what he did okay in his time he doesn't you know like i actually think he he probably would he probably would never say it because the movie has become this almost untouchable thing. You're not allowed to have a contrary opinion about mm-hmm. the princess bride. Otherwise you're some sort of mm-hmm. outcast. You know, you'll be, you'll be shunned by polite right. society. If you dare to look at it and say, Hmm, sets are pretty bad. Special effects, pretty, pretty bad. There's very little plot. Like I'm not sure where, what, what drives the plot is. It could, it's almost unnecessary. Right. right. But what you're talking about, that's the interesting stuff. So it's like, how did this guy adapt his yeah. own book and leave out what sounds like the most interesting stuff? <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. All right, all right. No, I'm, I want I'm, you to make it. Believe me, it needs make. someone with real talent and imagination. <laughs> I actually think it would be worthwhile to do it. Here's another pet peeve I have, Ben. You know me. You know that I get okay. fixated on minute details that throw me and I can't accept anything after this happens. Oh, I, oh, I can't, I hope I can't have mine. synthesizers on the soundtrack. can't do it okay 18 million dollars you can't spend seven hundred fifty thousand dollars on an orchestra why do i have to have synthesizers in a movie that is set in a fairy tale that throws me out of the movie okay Okay, so we have to talk about the the soundtrack so so you know that 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 rob reiner had had seen local hero also did one of my favorite films and so mark knopfler did the 
the score to Local Hero, mm-hmm. which is great. And Rob Reiner really wanted Mark Knopfler to do the score for The Princess Bride. I assume you know the story that Mark Knopfler agreed to do it, but he had one condition. He had loved Spinal Tap, and that's the reason why he wanted to do the film. And so he told Rob Reiner that he would do the film if the Marty DeBerge hat from Spinal Tap is in the movie Princess Bride. And uh, Rob Reiner was like, sure, they bring you know Mark Knopfler in. They, the, they, they're showing it at the premiere after the premiere, Rob Reiner comes up to Mark Knopfler and he's like, did you see the hat? Did you see the hat? I, I you know, I hung it behind uh, Fred Savage in his room. You know, I couldn't get the real hat. So I had another hat made and, you know, I put it in the, and Mark Knopfler looked at me and he was like, I was kidding. <laughs> you had to do that. <laughs> That's great. Okay, well, can I, I'll tell you my pet peeve. Okay. The scene is <laughs> carrying a bag through the entire, you know, chase thing only to reveal that what is inside that bag is a bottle of wine, two goblets, a hunk of cheese, and some bread, and a tablecloth. Like, that just seems like, why would you be traveling with that? <laughs> well, I mean, there's quite a few things like that if you really wanted to get into the nitty-gritty, okay. but I wouldn't want to disabuse your your love for the film. Wait, can um, I say, um, when we were talking about alternative casting, I wanted to say that there's, for this film, and I don't know if you have this as a segment, there was an alternative ending which, thank God, they didn't go with. Wait, which was not in the yeah, book? Yeah, not in the book. They shot a scene where Fred Savage gets up out of bed, goes to the window. We had the little boy, after Peter Falk leaves, he leaves through the book, and he starts you know, reliving it. And then we had the four heroes on the four white horses. He looks out the window, and he sees them, and he waves to them. So we had these four white horses, and we had Andre. We had to, you know, he's 500 pounds. <laughs> So there's no horse that could support him. So we had to figure out a way to lift, you know, lower him from the ceiling on like cables. And uh, that day, the Nouveau Beaujolais came out and he started drinking about nine o'clock. He drank like, I'm not exaggerating, like 20 bottles of Nouveau Beaujolais. And I'm now at the end of a day, it's eight o'clock at night. I'm walking to the end of Shepard and Studios. It's kind of a misty rain. And they open the, the, the doors of the stage. And there comes from the ceiling a 500-pound drunken giant. And he's waving at me. And he's going, hello, boss, like this. And I'm thinking, what do I do for a living? What, what is my job here? <laughs> That's when you have to really read. I, I think Fred Savage and Pierre Falk are miscast. Oh, interesting. I think Pierre Falk, I mean, of course, you know, yeah. I have a whole segment, the yeah. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah, oh, one more thing. So I'm not, but Pierre Falk is like black licorice. You know, you have to deploy it very mm-hmm. sparingly. He's doing, a, it's, I think you're right. It's like the actor Peter Falk, as Columbo portraying someone else's grandfather, it's like three levels of something that's going on. And the whole time he's kind of, he's kind of winkingly commenting on the fact right. that he's even doing right. it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was, and it just he feels was a little like, upset at first because he was only 59 years old at the time. And he, they had to redo his makeup because then when they first did his makeup, he felt it made him look too old. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Again to me tomorrow. As you wish. 
Yeah, I didn't buy him as Fred Savage's grandfather. I would have liked to have seen like a Paul Newman. Oh, yeah. You know what my or the, your, you know, or they could have done up Rob Reiner and had him. What about what about oh, Carl? Yeah, Carl. What, why why not Carl Reiner? Would have been killed. Oh, that. Amazing. You know what right? my favorite um, bit of of production design is is that behind Fred Savage is not one but two William the Refrigerator Perry posters, which. I knew you were going to, I knew that you were going to single on the refrigerator Perry posters. And I'm glad you mentioned the DeBerge hat because that was the first thing I noticed in the first scene of the movie. I was like, well, I was like, Oh, there's one of Rob Reiner's hats, his like USS and yeah. Navy hats or whatever. What do you think is the greatest Rob Reiner directed movie? I like a lot of them, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to mention an Aaron Sorkin film on your podcast because I know what kind of reception I will get, but a few good men have- a few By the way, the movie okay, so well, hold on one second. You're referencing the episode that came out last week about network in which I went on, I used my podcastorial authority to cut in a clip to make a point that I was making about Aaron Sorkin being a second-rate Patty Chayefsky, and I thought I used a devastatingly perfect soundbite did you did you agree yeah i mean of course but i mean with aaron sorkin you're either gonna like that thing or you're not gonna like that thing (laughs) but god that is one of the most ridiculous speeches ever the statistical data recall of jeff daniels in that is just so insane come on i also love i love carrie always talking in the book about how he's like yeah sure sword fight training no problem like shows up and like many particular is already stripped to the waist ripped sweating has been training for months is completely advanced expert you know sword <laughs> fighter and is just like and kind of just like oh right okay sorry uh you know this is probably like before people knew what how far mandy was willing to go yeah so it's weird right reiner you know he had a run there in the 80s so he goes spinal tap sure thing stand by me princess bride harry met sally misery a few good men that's pretty good very good. So, so William Goldman, I saw this movie. I read the book. I loved it. About a year later, I read Marathon Man. And Marathon Man is not one of my favorite films, but it is still probably really? one of my favorite books. And if you've seen the film, it's not going to do the same thing for you mm-hmm. if you read the book now. It's really one of those books that you have to have read the book first. I was lucky that that happened for me. And part of the reason why is, I'm going to spoil Marathon Man, so spoiler alert. Spoiler alert for 1976's Marathon Man. When you read the book, his brother is a character and the spy is a character. Right. And you do not know for almost the entire time, they are the same person. Oh. When you find that out, That's it's one of those moments where you're reading where like everything just stops. You're like, oh my God. That's amazing. They can't do that in a movie because they're both played by Roy Scheider. Well, they do it in the movie. You, you, there's a moment where you realize Roy Scheider is, is not who you thought he was, but yes, it's different. It's true. It's true. They try to like make it work, but it's not the same throughout the book, you are following these two characters that you only later come to find out is, is the same character. So so he's already, so William Goldman, who is already a god to me, I then, you know, got into screenwriting a little bit. So I read Adventures in the Screen Trade. The book is so fantastic. So I happened to know a guy about 20 years ago who was very close with him. 
And when he found out that I was really a huge fan, he said, you know, um, he's got this new book coming out. It, it was the sequel to Adventures in Screen Trade called Which Lie Did I Tell? He said, you know, I've got an advanced copy. Like, do you want to read it? And I was like, yeah. So I read the advanced copy. And because I was a fifth grade language arts teacher, I can't help but find typos. <laughs> and so I found about five typos in the book. And I went back to the guy who gave it to me and I said, you know, just, I loved it. It was great. Um, this, I'm laughing because this is so you that you were about to correct William Goldman over his typos. If anyone knew Ben Fusner out there, anyone who's listening to this who grew up with us in New Haven is laughing right now, Ben, I guarantee you. because There is none more Fusner than this story. <laughs> I said, listen, I found some typos. And like, look, if it were me, I would want someone to point them out because I wanted because okay. So what did you do? You asked the guy, should I should you, should I give you my list of typos for you to give to Bill? I did. And what did he and say? He said yes. He said yes. I think he would appreciate that. And so it's a galley. Um, Don't you know? I mean, you know that it's that's that's going. It's there's a reason you have a galley totally. and a per- correct. Totally. And I said. Totally. And I said, it's very possible that this hasn't even gone through the, you know, fine terms, but, but, you know, I, the worst thing in the world for me would be this book comes out and they're in there and I could have stopped it. I could have saved okay, so, one more so June. Wait, this is my Schindler's List moment. So I, so I gave my written up copy back to the guy who. Did you write any other, did you, you include, did you include some other substantive notes? I said to him, please tell him that I loved the book and I am only doing this out of concern for, you know, the... the No, but I mean, did you include any sort of criticisms of like, I was a little unclear in chapter four. (laughs) First of all, I love the book. And second of all... Okay, okay. I would have loved it if you had done Um, that. That would be funny. And so I... By the way, I've done this with other people too. I mean... I've, I've yeah, you've done it with emails to, that I sent you, but okay, go ahead. So what happens? I've, you give the list. I send emails to writers after their book was published, just saying, hey, in case they do another sure. pressing. No. Um, this is the, my mom. And Please my add mom Ben Fusner to the security list my at my mom. next reading. I would show my mom something I'd worked on, you know, for ages. And the first thing she would, oh, I do would that. be like. I do that horribly to my daughter. It's terrible. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, anyway, well, yeah. So, so she'll be she'll talking, be talking about, about you someday. Yeah. So, so uh, I didn't hear back, and I was like, okay, well, that's <laughs> it. I blew my chances with William Goldman. And then the book came out, and the book came out. It was in stores, and I was like, oh, yeah, there's that book. And I went on the shelf just to make sure, and there weren't the mistakes that I had noticed. So somewhere along the way, whether it was me or an editor, they got caught. And then in the mail, directly to me, not even through the, the mm-hmm. person we both knew, so he got my address, he mailed me the book signed to me I wow this is it right here this is it right here for ben hang in god bless william goldman wow and uh and, and it came with a letter thanking me now, you know not, not it wasn't profuse or anything but it was just like hey thanks wait so much is there a three. comma after hang in uh no there's no <laughs> there's no punctuation no punctuation wow i yeah yeah so i'm that's you know, a prize is that I, your most prized filmic possession uh, it's a it's a very prized book. We you know we are um, renting this year. We sold our house and are renting this year, and so a lot of stuff is in storage. And we also actually called through and tried to get rid of a lot of books. But when I was going through books, this was obviously a book. Can I, I have that in your will? <laughs> well, let's see what happens with my children. Let's see. Oh, they're not going to appreciate this. 
might. I'm just no, saying. They, like the, they really like the Princess Bride. In fact, I have audio of me interviewing them immediately afterwards for their immediate take. So if you want me to send oh, okay. those audio. Well, I'm just saying, like, maybe you could have one of those things that's like, if, you know, if in the next, like, 10 years, you should, you know, predecease me that the William Goldman book can go to me. And then I'll be a custodian, a steward of it until such time as I deem your children mature enough to handle such a, a talisman and a relic. Okay, I'm, 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 I'm taking this into consideration. Okay. Uh, also, I should just mention Butch Cass and the Sundance Kid is also one of my favorite films. Also, it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. So I'm really giving myself Also a has a strangely out of character soundtrack. Raindrops have fallen on my head. But that doesn't mean my eyes will soon be turning red. Crying's not for me, cause I'm never gonna stop the rain by complaining, because I'm free. Nothing's worrying me. In that case, ends up working like a piece of genius where the synthesizers in this movie will drive me crazy until the end of my days. And, and, and William Goldman mentions Butch Cassidy and the Sinus Kid several times in The Princess Bride. In the book. In, during his yeah. interstitial moment. Yeah. <laughs> Even there's a great little moment too where he's talking about just being cantankerous and working with people who make movies and them like, you know, always want to change your stuff when you're the writer. And uh, he some producer on Butch Cass and Sundance Kid wanted to change the line where Butch says, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals mm -hmm. because he didn't think bifocals were, you know, invented yet. Right. William Goldman goes on a long rampage about how bifocals definitely had already existed at that point. And the writer, put his the writer's revenge. Sure that line stayed in the movie. That's hilarious. I want to I say one more thing about this movie. Yeah. That's the only thing I have left. In the book, you know, Carrie Elwes talks about this. And again, this is one of these things where I'm sure this exists many, many, many examples. Yeah. And you can probably think of them off the top of your head. I can't. It's an interesting film in that all of the supporting parts are played by very established people. Tony Award winners and people nominated for Oscars like Chris Sarandon and that kind of thing. And the two leads are played by these very young newbies. Robin Wright had basically been a nothing. Mm -hmm. Carrie always had been things and you know at the time carrie always didn't even think about like all that was on his shoulders that the two leads you know of this film were carrying this with all these veterans you know around them and and he speaks of everyone speaking very nicely of them and that they handled it and they they did well it just reminded me of a story when um i did a lot of acting when i was in college and the very first play i i auditioned for i got the lead um, I think the director really liked the rawness, like that I hadn't been trained in anything. And um, the very first meeting, the table reading, where we first, you know, we'd gotten our parts and now we're sitting down with our scripts, the director said, okay, well, the, um, next week we're going to work on blocking. And I raised my hand and she said, yeah. And I said, um, what's blocking? <laughs> and the woman who was playing the lead opposite me, who is a very good friend of mine and is very, very sweet and hates when I tell the story and tries to imagine it didn't happen just like slapped her head really loudly <laughs> upon my saying what what's blocking i'm, I'm the lead male in you're just block. a natural ben you know you're like andre the giant i think i got worse with training once i started taking acting classes that's I what they do you read good. william goldman's books they squeeze it out of you yeah. oh i know what it was yeah. i know what i wanted to mention the reason i was so confused oh, right. reading the actual book princess bride 
was because by now, or whatever the last edition of the book was, there are these intros mm -hmm. to the book that William Goldman had done along the way. Mm -hmm. So that now there are like two intros which mm. are dated, you know, 10 or 15 years apart. And they too engage right. in this type of like meta thing that layers upon layers of like, what is going on? I just could not figure out what yeah. the hell. I have an, I have an original 19. Yeah. So is there, is there, is there an intro in that? There's an intro, but the intro is, is the, the part about the whole thing about the history of this, but how my father okay. used to read me. Yeah. So in the, 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 the Kindle edition I'm reading, there are two subsequent intros before that intro. <laughs> I was like, you gotta get, it was, you gotta start at the true. And I, I felt like back. I was Woodward and Bernstein in all the president's men trying to follow the narrative. Speaking of another great William Goldman script. Controversially. So though, there is yes, a whole school of thought that um, and now this happens more often on movies than people want to acknowledge. But, you know, basically the story on that movie, which, again, people can listen to our All the President's Men episode for more in-depth mm -hmm. information about mm -hmm. that amazing movie. That's right one of my top three films of all time, for sure. Um, Bill Goldman says he wrote so many versions of the screenplay. There were so many other people contributing ideas that, it of course, became one of those movies where famously, even though he won an Academy Award for it, his name is the only name on it. There are plenty of other people who will claim or will say that he didn't really write it in the sense of the way we think about writing a movie. But like I said, his name is on the script. He won an Academy Award for it. End of conversation. We can't talk about William Goldman without mentioning the great story about Goodwill Hunting, where you know the apocryphal story is that he he's he actually wrote Goodwill Hunting, and the the faint praise, the back the backhanded praise he gives to say that he didn't write. Are you that talking movie about the therapist so, thing? So great because he says, yeah, yeah, he says absolutely, I didn't write that movie. Those guys were great. They wrote that all themselves. They did such a wonderful job. And besides, if I had written that film, there wouldn't be that terrible scene with the therapist like no therapist talks like that no, no, no. well he thought that he thought that he, the therapist hugging matt damon was in was such an affront to the concept of therapy that had anyone have been to therapy you know says the guy who thinks bifocals existed in butch cassidy and sundance kid by the way wow i'm gonna send you the paragraph <laughs> and he will um okay what else let me just look through my notes here ben do we miss anything on this I mean, there's so many things in the film. film. Scenes. What's your favorite scene in the movie? My favorite scene in the movie, I, I think, is the is the Battle of Wits scene. Really? <laughs> you guessed wrong. You only think I guessed wrong. That's what's so funny. I switched glasses when your back was turned. Ha <laughs> ha, you fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well-known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> it's absurd. It's an absurd scene, but I just I just love it. And I love the trick is that he put the hurricane powder in both. I just, I just have it's always loved that scene. Yeah, I mean, I guess... When you first find out that Fezzik and Inigo are both good guys, mm. I think that really was big for me too. So, so Inigo on the top of Cliffs of Insanity with the whole sword fight, and yes. it really is an amazing sword fight. And then immediately following it with the Fezzik. Uh, speaking of another line that's not in the book. I do not envy you the headache you will have when you awake. But in the meantime, rest well and 
dream of large women. When he says, rest well and dream of large women. I would choose a Fezzik scene. I think the Andre scenes, I just, he's a unique and fascinating on-screen presence. Um, Was he in any other movies other than this? He was in a few, oh, uh, maybe he was, maybe it was all TV shows. He was in a bunch of TV shows. Bunch I mean, he had kind of a bad experience maybe. in some of the TV shows, but he loved this. I'm surprised he didn't do much more after this, yeah. but maybe. One of my favorite bits in the whole movie, which also I was surprised is in the book, and it's in the book written exactly. I just love when he says, Here we go. I sit at the princess tables, and there they were, four white horses. And I thought, there are four of us. If we ever find a lady... Hello, lady. And I figured if we find the lady, hello, lady. <laughs> Wait, so that is in the book? Yeah, that's in the book. Exactly written like that with M dashes. I love Ron Reiner says lady. that, like, you know, you know, you you captured sort of his 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 um his avuncular nature that Carrie always sort of captures really well in the book. Mm-hmm. Where anytime Carrie would call him, there's a scene in the book where it's the night before filming is to begin, and Carrie always is having that actor moment, which is like racked with self-doubt i can't do this why am i how how am i going to do this and he calls rob reiner under the guise of like so what are we doing tomorrow and like then he kind of like says the actor thing to the director which is like i I just want to get him right you know which if you're listening with your producer director ears you know means oh my actor is having a moment now and i need to talk him down but he'll capture rob reiner's way of being like oh hiya carrie oh hiya ben how are you? Oh, hi. Oh, you got it. It was the same thing with Vicini's voice. He sounds like you. Don't worry. Um, yeah. He's, he's a very good impressionist, by the way. Yeah, if you can find, there's, there's. I remember, I couldn't, I couldn't find it on YouTube, but I remember him being on one of the late night shows doing impressions of people on, in the cast, uh, doing impressions of each other. Uh, well, the only, the only impression that I do that's really good uh, is Lee J. Cobb. I do Lee J. Cobb from, from uh, 12 Angry Men. It's the best thing I do, uh, and I'll do it for you. And if you have young viewers, and they, they won't know what this is. Lee J. Cobb, this is Lee J. Cobb in 12 Angry Men. Everything, every single thing says he's guilty. What do you think, I'm an idiot or something? The old man saw him right there on the stairs. Everything. Every single thing that took place in that courtroom, but I mean everything, says he's guilty. What do you think? I'm an idiot or something? The old man saw him right there on the stairs. Another thing that I think is very special about this movie is that you really, you can tell what a good time they're having. You can. Everyone who talks about it talks about that. They live together. They all came together. They ate all their meals together. And they, they clearly had a great time. I watched this movie twice in preparation for this podcast. And I have to say, I thought to myself, this is the first time I am ever watching this movie with a critical eye. Interesting. I've never watched it with a critical eye before. And so that, so it is interesting. Yeah. It, it well, I'm sorry great. to have made you do that, Ben. Yeah. You ruined it for me. It's done. <laughs> it was worth it for this. It was worth it to know that you loved me. I do love you, Ben. Oh, without qualification. Okay. Okay. There we go. Hello? Okay, you don't really have any latchkey TV experiences. You wanted to go on some long, involved thing about watching the movie channel. I don't know if we need to do that. Here's what I want to say about latchkey TV. I I enjoy listening to the latchkey TV segments, and it takes me down memory lane. I was very much not a latchkey child. I cannot remember a single day coming home from school my entire 
all my life up until college where one or both of my parents wasn't home. Wow. I really, really love television and I really loved watching television. And I love listening to all of the people uh, that you um, have on talk about their television experiences. One show that has not come up yet, I believe, I don't remember ever hearing anyone mention it is, and, and it's inexplicable that I, as a Jew, Jewish boy from Connecticut, watched the show, but the show Davy and Goliath. What's the matter, Goliath? I don't know, Davy. I've never been on a sled before. Give it a try, old fella. You'll really like it. Well, okay. Uh, no, Goliath, you sit up. That is a big part of all of our childhood, even though we were essentially being brainwashed with Christian ideology without realizing it. Totally. And it's one of the only impressions I do, is I do a Goliath impression. I do it all the time at home. I don't know why it comes up, but for some reason, I just find myself often saying, Hey, Davey. And um, so, so I've been surprised that it doesn't come up. I, I too, I think it's just because it was so yeah. ubiquitously on TV at the time. There really wasn't anything like it except when you got to the holidays and you had sort of the heat misers and the other sort of holiday right. specials that used the same type of like plasticine stop motion animation, yeah. I guess. Here's here's my only other um, uh, uh, impression, really. Well, I, I probably have about five or six, but this is the only other one I can think of. I don't know why. It's not even one of my favorite films, but I do an impression of the character from Chariots of Fire telling his girlfriend that he is going to run in the Olympics. Let me see if I can get it. That is a deep, deep cut. Uh, Jenny, I believe God made me with a purpose. He made me to go to China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, (laughs) I feel his pleasure. Jenny, Jenny, you've got to understand. I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. <laughs> okay, I can't wait to cut that one in too. That's going to be good. Put the real one next. Why? How, how did you end up doing no, that? Is it no a totally obscure... No one of the other of my favorite lines is Jeremy Irons in Reversal of Fortune saying, I'll have my own order of the ginger prawns. I did the, You've mentioned I that before. I just have, there's these, <laughs> these certain lines in certain movies. That's, I think, why I love The Princess Bride so much. It's so quotable. Wait, but that line in that movie is, is serves such I'll a purpose. I'll have my own order of the ginger prawns. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, because <laughs> it's... it's uh, right, Jared, the it's, fire it's, is an Oscar it's, winner. It's, I mean, it's, I'm, not, I'm not plugging them out. Okay, but speaking of bad yeah. soundtracks... Uh, Chariots of Fire would otherwise be an iconic movie for all time. I'm not going to say it's ruined because I love the Vangelis soundtrack on its own as a thing. But tied to that film, it's too dated now.
the synthesizer oh, sound I, is too I dated. Watch Chariots of Fire since probably it's it's a great film, but it's got this of its time synth soundtrack. Maybe Mark Knopfler did that too. Our full casting crew. Okay, I have to go cook dinner now. Yeah, yeah, you gotta go. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. Love you. Talk to you soon. Bye.